All right, please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 20. We're back in Luke 20, verses 20 through 26. We'll actually uh, be uh, semi-topical, speaking on this topic uh, that, that we covered last week of respectful appeal. Uh, as I preached this message effectively about submission to authority, which is really what it ended up being, uh, we, we talked about rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but we also spoke on uh, the authorities in our lives as a whole and how we are to submit ourselves to said authorities. Uh, it became apparent to me throughout this week um, that, as I sometimes do when I preach on this, um, there, there was a little bit more that needed to be said. The scriptures tell us about this applica- the application of this larger principle of justice that we render to every man, woman, institution, its due in accordance with their God-given design and rights. There is another layer that we would layer on top of submission, which is important to consider that I'd like to talk to you about this evening. Please um, take note, I call it a layer on top of submission because nothing I am going to say this evening ought to be interpreted or understood outside of the principles we talked about last week. Uh, whenever we talk about, as you can see in the title, respectful appeal, respectful resistance, respectful release, uh, respectful is that first word because it is all within the context of biblical submission that I am presenting these thoughts this evening. Instead of invalidating what I said last week through what I'm saying this week, which would be, um, of course, not helpful at all, uh, what I intend to do this, this evening is to show you how to find solutions to your problems with authorities while maintaining submission. When these methods and strategies fail, submission must be maintained. Better to suffer under submission than to triumph under rebellion. And this is the reason why, in fact, I find myself so often forgetting this principle because at the end of the day, when I preach submission, uh, nothing I said last week was wrong or even insufficient. It's simply that as we look in the scriptures and as we live out life, we find that, that um, there are, are times where we are submitting and we are miserable. And the question becomes, is there a solution to that at all? Or is it just our lot in life to be miserable under submission? And while it, it, it is our lot in life to submit, and as I mentioned, better to choose miserable submission than triumphant rebellion. At the same time, we see throughout the scriptures many illustrations, examples of submission while at the same time respectfully appealing to one's authority even sometimes respectfully resisting one's authority without displeasing the Lord. Because the teaching in the Bible is so strong and clear on submission, and because submission is always the default priority, it can be easy to overlook the ways that the Bible teaches in which we under submission can advocate for ourselves. And that's what I'd like us to cover this evening. I'm going to begin by highlighting... A biblical principle under which this concept, particularly of appeal, but even of resistance, operates. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, we read this. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. 
Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal." knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. So within this teaching on submission, which we see quite clear in this passage, right? We see submission of of wives to husbands. We see submission of children to parents. We see submissions of servants to masters. Within this teaching of, uh, of, of submission to authorities, we actually also see in a beautiful way the paralleled responsibility of each authority, don't we? Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Masters, give unto your servant what is just and equal. All of these expectations operate under the principle that God is above these leaders, right? Knowing that ye also have a master in heaven, Colossians chapter 4, verse 1 says. Because you know you have a master in heaven, you need to lead properly. Because you know that you have a master in heaven, you need to love your wife. Because you know that you have a master in heaven, you need to not provoke your children under anger. Because you know you have a master in heaven, you need to give unto your servants that which is just and equal. And let me say this as we begin. Like with all things under God's economy, to whom much is given, much is required. The more authority God gives you, the more accountability you will carry with you. Husband, as a husband... God is going to hold you accountable. Parent, as a parent, God is going to hold you accountable. Boss, as an administer, God is going to hold you accountable. Pastor, as a shepherd, God is going to hold me accountable. The point is that having authority and exercising it properly is just as much of a challenge as submitting ourselves to authorities. You say, well, that doesn't make sense because the master has all the power. Yes, but that means the master has all the accountability. On the earthly plane, it may look like the servant gets the raw deal if the master is being a poor master. On the the earthly plane, it may look like the wife is getting a raw deal if the husband is being a bad husband. On the earthly plane, it may look like the child is getting a raw deal if the parent's being a bad parent. But when we look at things, if I can say it this way, in three dimensions, with the spiritual dimension added, what we find out is whatever raw deal you're getting as the submissive party, your authority is going to get a much more, a much rawer deal on God's end if they maintain a poor accountability before the Lord. But both are essential. The submission and the authority, the ruling, they are essential because in each of these ways, what we really reflect is the nature of God. As we submit, the point is not that you're actually, the, the, the point, the mindset is not I'm submitting to authority, right? We said this last week. It's not about whether our authority is good or bad. It's not about whether they're competent or incompetent. It's about whether or not God is true, and the Word of God is true. 
But that doesn't mean that God has not given you under submission options with respect to advocating for yourself. And that's what we're going to talk about. Now, the reason why I give you this principle reflected in each passage on submission in some form is because it is an appeal to God. We are appealing to God as our higher authority. And this entitles us to appeal to our earthly authority because God is higher than the authority unto whom we're going to appeal. And because we are asking our authority to align himself with God or align herself with God, we are appealing to God himself and the principles of God as we appeal to our authority. In other words, you're going to ask your authority, seeking to help them see the way that they're treating you as not just an offense to you, but as an offense to God and help them realign with God's expectations and the responsibility of God's design for them. Now, this does not mean, especially with unbelieving authorities, that you're going to directly appeal to God's design. In other words, you're not going to go to your unbelieving boss and say, you're offending God, you need to change something, right? That's not not going to happen. You'll likely focus on the action and viable solutions. We'll talk about that. But this is the underlying principle. The underlying principle is, hey, boss, God is going to hold you accountable. I am under, I am submitting to you. You're being a poor leader. You are not holding up your end. You are not being responsible unto the Lord. And you're appealing to them to change their behavior. And you're partnering with God to do it. This underlying principle, though, that God is their master, that God desires that which is just, that which is equitable, that which is right for those who are in submission, is what gives you the right to go up to an authority figure and and appeal to them. It's what gives you the right to resist an authority figure. So the title of my sermon reflects what we're going to cover, respectful appeal, respectful resistance, respectful release. I'll explain the concept behind each as we get going. And we're going to begin with respectful appeal. The concept behind respectful appeal is that you as a subordinate who is biblically obligated to submit to an authority as unto the Lord, you are finding it very difficult to perform this task biblically. They are making it very difficult for you to submit in heart and in attitude for one reason or another. Perhaps this authority is making bad decisions that are difficult to fall in line with, and it's causing you to want to rebel, to want to step outside of their authority. Perhaps the authority is actually causing harm, physical harm, emotional harm, spiritual harm, and it, it it is affecting you in those ways. It may be that an authority is asking you to offend the will of God, in which case the respectful appeal will come with an ultimatum of refusal. We'll talk about that, right? We talked about that last week, uh, some as well, that the biblical principle is that the only time we are right in refusing our authority is when we are asked to do something that is contrary to the will of God. But it may also be that the the authority is not asking you to offend the will of God, but is not doing right by God in the way that they're treating you. Or even as simple as the thing they're asking you to do is not good, it's not efficient, it's not profitable. All of these could be the context within within which you're going to make a respectful appeal. Maybe the the thing that they're asking you to do is not to, to cause great offense to the will of God, but they are breaking down your will and your spirit and your, 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 your emotions and your, your encouragement to where you're starting to think resentful thoughts. Uh, you're having a hard time not being bitter against them, uh, whatever it might be. 
And so you're going to make an appeal for a change in action, a change in behavior, a change in situation. And the important thing to understand is that submission does not ever invalidate appeal. Submission does not invalidate appeal. It invalidates certain methods of appeal. There are certain methods you cannot do while being respectful and submissive. But it does not invalidate the opportunity to appeal to your authority. It sets boundaries regarding the extent to which you can appeal. At some point, the appeal ends and you either just need to submit or you need to to switch to respectful refusal. But it does not invalidate your ability to appeal to your authority. So let's consider some examples together. And I'd like to begin with King David speaking to King Saul as Saul is pursuing David, desiring to kill him. Saul is the king, the Lord's anointed at that point. But David had also been anointed by Samuel to be the next king in Israel. David is a citizen of Israel. What Saul is doing is unjust. It's evil. David had done nothing wrong. He had done nothing whereby Saul ought to be seeking him out to kill him. But God had explicitly commanded all the way back Uh, to the opposition of Datham and Abiram, to the priesthood of Aaron in the wilderness, that no man should oppose or lay his hands upon the Lord's anointed. If God has chosen someone, you do not stand against him. You do not lay your hands on him. You do not oppose him. So David is in a tough spot where he knows he's going to be the next king. He desires to do right. He loves the Lord. He wants to submit to the king, but the king wants to kill him. That's a tough spot. How do you submit to someone who wants to kill you if you don't want to die? It's a tough spot. So David's in a bad spot where he wants to be fully submitted to the king without dying. But God did not ask him to die. God did not ask him to physically oppose Um, Saul either so David flees he starts running for his life and in 1 Samuel 24 King Saul enters a cave and he doesn't know that David and his men are there while Saul is in the cave David cuts off a piece of his garment as proof of just how easy it would have been to kill Saul he intends to use this scrap of cloth to prove he has no ill will towards Saul we read that even to this extent of threat uh, David is under conviction He feels bad about even cutting off the the part of his garment. Saul leaves the cave. And once there's a safe distance between David and Saul, David reveals himself. And we pick up here in 1 Samuel 24, verses 8 through 15. The Bible says this. David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt. Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord hath delivered thee today into mine hand in the cave. And some bade me kill thee, but mine eyes spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not. Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in mine hand, and I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. The Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. 
as saith the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceedeth from the wicked, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. The Lord therefore be judge and judge between me and thee and see and plead my cause and deliver me out of thine hand. There are several principles of appeal which I'd like to consider from this passage of Scripture. First and foremost, notice that David never lost sight of the principle. The lines were drawn in his mind along the lines of God's call to submit. Even when David cut off just the hem of Saul's garment, he immediately felt some conviction that maybe he had gone too far outside of the bounds of submission in just cutting off the hem of his authority's garment, of the garment of the Lord's anointed. He knew that his power over his authority ended at personal appeal and then fleeing for his life. And he could not and would not become rebellious. He could not, he would not become rebellious. Second, we see David's appeal began with an obvious show of humility. So he begins with the principle. In his mind, he says, I will not rebel. That is what is in his mind as he goes to approach his authority. I will not rebel. I will not rebel. I will not rebel. That's the mindset. Now notice how he begins his appeal. He begins with a show of humility and submission. He calls out to Saul, my Lord and my King. Not exactly the title of one under whom you plan to rebel. He never intended his words to be taken as a threat to Saul, as an attempt to override Saul's authority, even to cast doubt on Saul's legitimacy. He lowered himself willingly before Saul, not because Saul had earned it. Saul had certainly not earned it. But because God had given Saul this position. Remember this. Let it ever be on your mind that the authorities in place are in place by God. We talked about that extensively last week. Say, no, pastor, that's not how my authority got in place. They got in place by schmoozing the boss. Right? They got in place by scheming or by lying or by nepotism or by whatever. Fill in the blank. Now, from a, again, from a temporal perspective, from an earthly perspective, okay, you're right. But let's look at it from a spiritual perspective as well. Can we trust that the word of God is true, that God is bigger than that? Can you trust that God knew that your authority would be your authority and that God knew you would be under him? If you can't get there, then this is where you need to park this evening. You can take everything else I'm about to say and just kind of set it on hold and just park at this idea. Can I trust that God ordains my authorities? Can I trust that my children, that my parents are not a mistake? Can I trust that my husband is not a mistake? Can I trust my pastor is not a mistake? Can I trust that my government is not a mistake? Can I trust that my boss is not a mistake? Can I trust that? We need to study God's word, absorb it as a child, like childlike faith. Absorbing the realities of God's working in this world until you can come to the place where you can trust God's sovereignty in this area of your life. Because without this faith, as we discussed last week, submission becomes an exercise rooted in loss and in injustice. Every time I submit, all I see submission as is losing something, is giving something up, is yielding something. Whereas when I can switch my perspective and I I can understand submission properly, then submission becomes rooted in faith and in hope of rewards that are to come. So David... 
as he makes this appeal, he first has the right, right mindset and then he verbally places himself under his authority to initiate this conversation. Third, David communicates very clearly. Saul had others talking in his ear about David, didn't he? Other people saying, David wants to overthrow. David is an insurrectionist. We don't know who that might have been. Maybe Doeg. We know Doeg was a pretty bad guy. Maybe it was just the demons in his head. We know Saul struggled with uh, um, a, a, an angry spirit. But Saul was convinced that David was an insurrectionist. That he was not submissive. David needed Saul to know that this was not true. He needed to be on the same page as Saul about these things. Open lines of communication are very important as a part of the leadership and submission relationship. Not every leader is willing to listen. We know that, right? And that's their problem, not your problem. But if they will not listen, let it not be because you are not willing to communicate, but only because they were unwilling to hear. Let me tell you how this plays out as a pastor. I'll give you a personal thing here. There's something wrong in the church. Maybe I'm not doing something well as a pastor. Maybe I'm taking too much upon myself. Maybe I'm overlooking something that needs to be dealt with. There are perceived disagreements on something important. And it's obvious to people. Maybe many people. Maybe just a few people. And they begin to talk about it. And they become discontent. And they're upset. And they're offended. And this spreads to others. And people are talking about this thing, where, that this problem in the church. And you know who never hears about it? The one guy who can do something about it. The pastor doesn't know. He hasn't heard. He doesn't know you're discontent. He doesn't know others are discontent. He doesn't know he said that thing that got people upset. He doesn't know that there are people that are, that are arguing in the church. He doesn't know this. He hasn't heard about this. Now, I'm not saying this is always the case. But what I'm saying is there are scenarios where this is the case. And, and, and it seems as though everybody knows. But pastor doesn't know. Nobody told pastor. And all the while, no one has come up to pastor and told him what's going on. And maybe I should see it. I should know. But that doesn't mean I do know or that I do see it. Or maybe there's no way I could possibly know. And then somebody comes up to me and says, pastor, we're leaving the church. And we're leaving the church because of, and they tell me about this thing that could have been solved, but no one ever told me. And this happens. And what just happened? The proper appeal to authority was never made. Instead, there was a lot of gossip. There was a lot of resentment. There was a lot of anger built up. There was a lot of stewing. There was a lot of bottling. Maybe this stuff never even got out. Maybe someone heard something that I said from behind the pulpit or something that was done and I didn't realize that it was done or I didn't realize that it offended someone and for the next month, two months, three months, they just bottle it up and, it's deep, and they just shove it deeper and deeper and everything now about pastors offending them and one day they just throw up their hands and say, Pastor, we're out of here. And it could have been dealt with with a simple, I'm sorry if I'd have just known what the problem was. Communication. So important. Maybe as a husband and wife, you've dealt with this. Maybe as a boss and an employee, you've dealt with this. Maybe as, uh, maybe with the government in some degree, you've dealt with this. Look, if you don't tell somebody something is wrong, how can they know that something is wrong? And if they don't know something is wrong, how can they fix it? Now, if they know something is wrong, of course, then it's their problem, right? It's their problem. Not, you, you've let them know this is between them and the Lord. 
But I'm talking about here communicating. Communicate clearly. If an authority doesn't know what's really going on, how can he be a help in in bringing about a solution? So David opened up communication here. He made sure they were on the same page. Saul, you have had people telling you that I am against you. Let me clear this up for you. I'm not. Let me clear this up for you. I have no aspirations to overthrow you. Let me clear this up for you. You're king and I'm not the king. Don't listen to all the gossip, king. This is me communicating with you directly. David made it clear that he is not Saul's enemy. That his intention is not rebellion. Look, if you're going to appeal to an authority, make it very clear that you're coming under submission. Make it very clear your intent is not to rebel, but that they are making it difficult for you to submit. You're making it difficult for me to do what you've asked because of this. This is a part of the communication process. An appeal to an authority is not a demand. You don't go up and say, hey, you're going to sit down and listen to me. And I'm going to tell you what I have to tell you. And you're going to listen. That's not an appeal to authority. That is not submissive, right? 1 Timothy 5.1 tells us this. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father and the younger men as brethren. In both instances, whether young and old, we treat people with respect. But in the manner of authority, we treat them while maintain, uh, in the context of authority, excuse me, we treat them in a manner of submission, in a manner of the respect that is due unto their position. And we let our authority know that our appeal is not intended to be a challenge to them. It's not intended to be a challenge to their authority, to their methods, to their, to their expectations. We're not coming with demands or accusations. We are entreating them for mercy, for a change, for an alteration of something. And this is important because as, an, as a subordinate, Your power to appeal is rooted in your testimony of submission. Your testimony of submission validates the spirit of your appeal. This is why it's important to submit at all times. If I am a rebel and then I go up and attempt to appeal to my submissive nature and and, and submissively appeal to to an authority, they're going to see it as a challenge by, by virtue of your testimony. No matter how submissive you try to be in your appeal, if you are regularly rebelling against them, there's no way an appeal is going to be seen as submissive. It's going to be seen as a challenge. But if you live out submission, and then you come with an appeal, your authority says, look, I know this person. They submit. They are not looking to cause trouble. And then you come to them in a submissive manner, and that's going to help. If you have that regular testimony of submission, that that appeal will have greater spiritual weight. Again, you say, Pastor, you don't know my boss. It's not going to help if I come submissively. But God knows your boss. And remember, we're we're playing this game not just on a physical plane. We're, We're playing with God on this, right? God is a part of this process. If I do it His way, can I trust that God can then lend His power to help my my appeal? To lend His power behind my appeal? A final element in this passage is David appealing for justice. 
He appeals to God to judge between the two. He asks for favor. He asks for justice. Now, in this example, uh, David's authority was wronging him. In other examples we might think of, we're not being wronged. We may just need something, desire something, seek a slight alteration. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But David appealed to justice. And if not the justice of his immediate authority, then the justice of God. In other words, he's saying, uh, King, you are wronging me. This is wrong. And I'm appealing to you for change because if you don't change, then God's going to start dealing with you. I'll appeal to God. And by the way, if you're dealing with a God-fearing authority, a parent or a husband or a pastor, you saying something is wrong and I'm appealing to God should, should scare them. Because if I am wronging a subordinate and that subordinate, and I know that I'm wronging a subordinate, and that subordinate is appealing to God, and because I'm not doing anything, God's going to start working on me as, as the authority and start chastening me. And so that matters. Say, Pastor, my boss is an unbeliever. Me going up and saying God's going to judge you isn't going to do much for them other than make them not like me more. The government isn't going to care about God. These things are true, but remember, we're studying principles here, right? The principle is this. Appeal to them for what is right. If your boss is mistreating you, he may not know God, but he knows right and wrong. God has built that in. It's his moral compass. So you appeal to that. You appeal to that. You appeal to decency, morality, humanity. You appeal, appeal to your faith if, if the person is a believer. You appeal to your faith, something you cannot do in good conscience. You go up to an unbelieving boss and say, excuse me, you're asking me to do something and my conscience is offended at the end of the day. I can't keep a clear conscience between me and my God and you appeal to them on that level. You can do that. You don't have to appeal to their faith, but you can appeal to yours. If you're leaving work with a wounded spirit, tell him so. If your husband is causing you shame or sorrow or exhaustion, tell him so submissively. You have already made it clear that you're under his authority, right? That's, that's a previous step. You've made it clear that you're under his authority. You've made it clear that your authority is your authority. Now tell them what is wrong. Be clear. Be communicative. Make sure he understands. And then leave it with God to do the work on your authority. Because God is there. And he's watching. And he cares. And remember what we said last week. Where you do what is right, God is then free to work on your authority. If you live in rebellion, then God is going to work on you. <laughs> He'll be resisting you. If you're under submission, then He can resist and chasten your authority. Can you trust that if you've done things the right way, God is on your side, that He is advocating for you? Pastor, that'll never work. Okay. Perhaps that's what Mordecai thought too. At least for a moment, when the king of Persia had decreed a death sentence upon all the Jews in the land, the king himself was unable to undo the command because it was a command by the Medes and the Persians. Mordecai is mourning for the death of his entire ethnicity. And he asks his niece, Hadassah, Esther, who is queen, to go in and to make an appeal to her authority. Just the entrance into that throne room might mean death for her. And so what does she ask? 
She, go, she tells Mordecai, tell everyone you know, tell the entire Jewish community to pray and to beg God. And, and once you're all prayed up, I will go in and I will make this respectful appeal. And so they pray and they pray and they pray. And when she steps into that throne room, if that scepter does not lift, she's dead. And yet, she's not trusting in her outward appeal to win the king here. She's trusting in God to give her the favor necessary to make this appeal. So she enters in. The king says, what what would you like? She says, come to a feast with me. So she invites him to a feast. She holds three feasts in the king's honor. Take note, this is not flattery. This is honor. This is her showing submission. This is her positioning herself to make an appeal. She is submitting, 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 honoring, 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 doing everything she can to make this authority understand his position and her position before she makes her appeal. All of this done in faith. The whole time, Mordecai and the families of the Jews are begging God for mercy, are asking God to prepare the king's heart for the appeal. You see, this is not just between me and my authority. This is between me and my authority and God. God is working on the heart of your authority, but they're an unbeliever. When has that ever made a difference to God? God is working on the hearts of authorities. Proverbs 21.1, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. And the end of it all is this in Esther chapter 7 verse 3. Then Esther the queen, queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. My request, if it please you, O king. Submission all the way through is that I would not have to die. She has asked many people to be praying for her. She finally makes her request and then she leaves that request in the king's hand, guided by God. Is there a risk here? Absolutely. (laughs) She has just outed herself as a Jew, which people did not know before. Which means now she is on the chopping block if the king doesn't care about her appeal. Maybe under normal circumstances, the authority wouldn't have cared. It's just an ethnic group of people. But do you believe that God, who is above your authority, could change his heart for your sake? Do you believe that God could change the heart of your authority, no matter how wicked, no matter how ungodly, no matter how pagan, for your sake? Do you believe that the prayers of the saints for you as you make your appeal could make a difference? It's a faith issue. We see another important principle in Esther's request come up in chapter 8. After the initial request has been made, she makes the request, the king gets very angry at Haman and his family, right? Ends up hanging a lot of them. Haman was the one who sought the death for the Jews. Hangs a whole lot of them. But there's nothing that, that the king could do about the death sentence. Because it was by the law of the Medes and the Persians. And the Medes and the Persians, the law of the Medes and the Persians, a little bit of a history lesson here. That means that when the king decreed it, he was decreeing it as the God of his people. And the king could not be wrong. Literally by law, the king could not be wrong when he set his seal on something. So he could not just tell the people, um, I've changed my mind on this 
because that would, that would uh, question his authority and his deity. So if it was sent out by the law of the Medes and the Persians, there's nothing you could do about it. So now the people are still going to die, even though Haman and, 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 and his rabble are, are, are dead. Until Esther and Mordecai come to the king again in Esther chapter 8, verse 5, and, and, and we read this. And said, if it please the king, if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes. Notice all the submission, all the honor. Let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces. Now, again, this was a law in the Medes and the Persians. So what the king allows is he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a second law. And the law is this, that every Jew in the nation has the right to defend himself with impunity without being punished. And by the way, we're going to support this. So now the Jewish population has the right to defend themselves and has the right to do so at the king's commission. So no one's going to succeed in destroying the Jewish people at this point. So he, he wrote a second law that effectively combated the first law. It's very important here what we see though. Did you notice that Esther did not just make an appeal for her king for mercy. She also offered him a solution to the problem. This can be a very powerful thing. That when you appeal to an authority in your life and you're asking for a change, have a solution for them already on the table. Something that might benefit them and something that will help you. Give them a solution to the problem and give them a, a way to maintain a strong leadership and to, to make a choice in your favor without, them have, without heaping on them the responsibility of now thinking of some way to please you. I've already given you a solution. They may accept it, they may not, but have some solutions ready. Now, much more could be said. We could go to the example of Abigail and David, which I preached about from 1 Samuel 25. I already preached res uh, um, respectful appeal from that passage before. It's probably a year and a half, two years ago. I encourage you, 1 Samuel 25, to go back and listen to that one if you'd like. We could talk more about Daniel in Daniel chapter 1 and 2, where Daniel did not appeal to the king directly. He appealed to a proper authority. We'll talk more about that in, in a minute. We could go to more about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 4. We talked about them last week. We could talk about Paul and the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 23. All different times where we see this concept of appeal. But in David, we see a helpful and I would say sufficient set of principles to guide us through this process. And let me boil them down here to a list for you. Respectful appeal. Prepare all hearts through prayer. Always remember that this is a faith issue. That this authority, no matter how pagan, is under God and that God can sway the heart of men. To this end, and this is important, you need to prepare your heart as well. Because if God does not sway the heart of your authority in your favor, you need to be ready to submit. Either way. Ask God to prepare their hearts. Ask God to prepare your heart. Be ready to leave it in God's hand. Second, appeal to the proper authority. David went to Saul because David was a leader in Israel and Saul was the next authority. Esther went to the king because Esther was queen. She appealed to her next authority. Daniel, as I just mentioned, did not appeal to the king directly. He appealed to the prince of the eunuchs who then appealed to the king because that was his chain of authority. Always go through a proper chain of authority. Don't go over the heads of your rightful authority to avoid conflict because that's just going to create a lot more conflict. Don't go over people's heads 
if you don't have the right, unless they're the one doing wrong and you need to appeal to a higher authority. Trust the Lord, appeal to the proper person, and trust that God can get their heart right and prepare their heart. Number three, plan the timing of the appeal. Esther made sure the king was properly uh, positioned for this appeal. She had been, and this sounds a little carnal, but she'd been buttering him up for a little while now. She'd been setting him at ease and making him know how much she meant to him and the honor that he had in her eyes. She spent a significant amount of time and effort to make that happen. Now, you may not always be able to do this, but anytime you can, do it. That means that if you want to appeal to your husband, make sure you're not appealing to him on an empty stomach. It's just not a good idea. Make sure it's not, make sure he's coming home from work, he closes the door, and all of a sudden, I've got to talk to you. Not a good time. Not a good time to make your respectful appeal. It's just not. Plan it out. Feed him. Let him rest a little bit. Let him settle down from the day. Then make your appeal. Maybe wait till the weekend. Let him get a little bit of rest first. Let him get some sleep if you need to. Plan your appeal properly. It can matter. If you want to appeal to your boss, don't do it during the yearly audit. If you want to appeal to your pastor, don't come to him on a Sunday afternoon, please. Even a Saturday night, not a good time to appeal to your pastor. There's a lot on a pastor's mind from Saturday night to the end of a Sunday night service. It's just not a good time to to go up to him and tell him all the problems uh, in the church. Plan the timing of your appeal. Number four, establish submission and elevate your authority. Make the lines clear between you and your authority. Don't come in a threatening manner, an aggressive manner. Don't come with ultimatums. Don't come in a frustrated tone. You're not making demands. You're not expecting special treatment. You know that you're under his authority. You know that you are, that you must be submissive. You already intend to be submissive. You're informing an authority of a need or a problem, knowing full well that you are, if I can put it this way, at their mercy. And if this sounds very humbling to you and that ruffles your feathers a little bit, well, that means you're human. Congratulations. But I remind you, God resisteth the proud but giveth grace to the humble. Before honor, Proverbs 15.33 says, Proverbs 18.12 says, is humility. We've uh, said, we've had various little sayings recently. One of my big ones has been, faith always precedes blessing. That's been a big one lately. Another one is faith anticipates works. We had that one a few weeks ago. Let's add a third one. Humility precedes honor. Humility precedes honor. Number five, make a clear and comprehensive appeal. As David did, this means you open the lines of communication. You leave no room for assumptions. Assumptions are the death of communication and relationships. Husbands, wives, write it down. Assumptions are the death of relationships and communication. Give all the information necessary for the authority to make an informed decision. Humility and honor go a long way toward trust. Clarity and thoroughness go even farther. If you have a believing authority, you can appeal to the spiritual. Either way, if necessary, you appeal to morality, dignity, reasonableness, humanity, need be and then finally come with viable solutions if the appeal warrants it offer a solution to the problem give your authority a reasonable solution and more often than not 
they'll be reasonable in desiring to fix the problem. Then you leave it in God's hands and you trust Him to make up the difference. Determined to submit to your authority whatever the outcome is. You pray, you pray, you pray, you pray, you pray. Pray, pray, pray. Ask others to pray. Talk to others. Get them to pray. Pray for your authority. When an authority in your life is in the wrong, respectful appeal is your first option. It allows the authority to access the blessings of God that come when they do right by their subordinates. And it gives the Holy Spirit of God maximum freedom to work within the heart of your authority on your behalf. This is the best place to start. Now we're going to move on to our second point. We spoke last week about resistance. That resistance is appropriate under one condition. That being when your authority asks you to do something that is opposed to the will of God. Something that is explicitly unbiblical, something that will offend your conscience, something that will put you in a dangerous position or a position which is not comfortable biblically, or something that will cause you to offend a higher authority. Such as if a boss asked you to do something that your parent or your husband, a higher tier of authority, asked you not to do. And if you've attempted in these cases to respectfully appeal without success, when there is a deeper problem, that means you are, you are breaching the will of God or you're breaching a biblical principle and you just cannot move forward in a clear conscience, the next step is to respectfully resist. As with respectful appeal, respectful resistance always has an eye toward God. You are doing this for the Lord's sake, not your own. You may benefit, you may not. Respectful resistance can sometimes mean bad things for you. But that isn't really the issue here because the issue is pleasing the Lord. As we mentioned last week, it's important that you search your own heart, that you search the principles of Scripture, and that you make sure that you are on the proper side of it. You make sure that the resistance is appropriate because if not, the Lord will begin to resist you. Last time we were together, we considered a few of these scenarios. We considered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3, the fiery furnace and their determination to obey the Lord. We considered Mordecai and Esther a little bit and his refusal to bow. We considered just briefly Acts chapter 5 and their refusal to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this, we considered elements of respectful appeal, that you resist motivated by faith and loyalty to a higher authority, not for your own benefit or for some ulterior motive. We spoke of being ready to suffer the consequences for these actions, which in certain places, times, and circumstances can mean suffering, can even mean death. In our time, the consequences are often less severe. We established all of this in principle last time we were together. But here's how I want to amplify this principle this evening, and just briefly. In Daniel 6, we read of a law established by Darius the Mede. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning that demanded that for 30 days no one could make a petition to anyone in prayer but to the king. Like with Mordecai, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, this was a law that Daniel simply could not obey. We do not read of a respectful appeal in this instance. We don't read of Daniel ever going up to the king and saying, King, uh, could I have a, an exception? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We don't know. Only that Daniel did not stop praying. He continued his prayers three times a day to his God. In this case, we find the consequences to be that Daniel was given the death sentence and thrown into a den of lions to be destroyed. However, as we've seen time and again, God protected his own, closed the mouth of the lions so that they could not harm him. And what I'd like for us to do is to observe the end of this with me, the end of this account. Daniel chapter 6, verses 19 through 22, the Bible says this, Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste, 
unto the den of lions. And when he came into the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said unto Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? Then said Daniel unto the king. Notice Daniel's response here. O king, live forever. My God has sent his angels and has shut the lion's mouth that they have not hurt me for as much as before him innocency was found in me. And also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. I would like to highlight a few important principles we find in this text. First, understand that Daniel's resistance was never about his authority. It was about what his authority had asked of him. Daniel did not ever leave his state of submission in his resistance. You realize that? Daniel never stopped submitting to Darius. He just didn't do this one thing Darius asked him to do because it was, it was contrary to a higher authority, to God. The next day when the king came to seek Daniel, what were the first words out of Daniel's mouth? O king, live forever. That does not sound like the, the words of a rebel, of a revolutionary. O king, live forever. Daniel's resistance was not about him not liking the king or disagreeing with the king. Well, this is just a pagan king. Now I'm going to show him. Uh, God didn't let me get eaten by these lions. Now we'll see. We'll, we'll see how the king reacts. Now the king has to humble himself before me. Nothing like that. Nothing like that. Daniel resisted the command that would cause him to sin. That would cause him to dishonor his God. But he did so while maintaining the utmost loyalty possible to the authority that God had placed over him. Isn't that incredible? That he was submissively resistant. Respectfully resistant. It seems contradictory, but it is not. I can simultaneously submit to someone and resist their unbiblical request. So your boss says, go do this. And you say, sir... You're my boss. I would love to do what you tell me to do, but I cannot do this because it's dishonest. But I cannot do this because it's inappropriate. But I cannot do this because my husband, my father said, I, I may not do that. I may not go there. I may not do this thing. I will do other things. Again, provide for them a solution. I'll do something else for you, but I cannot do that. Same with father, same with husband, same with government. I can respectfully and lovingly tell someone that I'm not going to do as they ask. But always, always, always root your resistance and your need to please the Lord. Not because I don't like what you've told me, but because I cannot do this in good conscience. You're still my authority. I will submit to everything that you can ask me to do that is within the realm of God's law and justice and expectations. But I cannot do this thing. I cannot do this thing. We don't resist because he's a sinful person, our authority. We don't resist because our authority does sinful things. We don't resist our authority. We resist what he's asking me to do. We resist the sinful things when he would ask us to be brought into his sin or something to that effect. Too often as Christians, we go one way or another. We either don't resist at all, even when asked to do something unbiblical or to offend our conscience because we feel compelled to submit where perhaps we should not, or in our zeal to do what is right, we begin to see our authority as the enemy rather than simply their policies and requests. Because maybe because they're pagans, we don't like them anyway, whatever it might be. So we begin to resist the person 
rather than the policy. We work up an animosity toward the people and that stirs up in my heart rebellion. Where I begin to resist things that aren't even unbiblical just because I've stopped liking that person and they would dare ask me to do something unbiblical. They would dare. If I may put it this way, that we might understand it better, oftentimes we begin to hate the sinner rather than just the sin. And that's a dangerous place to be. Daniel makes a distinction here. He's able to divide the king that gave the command from the command that the king gave. Now, in Daniel 6, it's a little easier because we know uh, the king's advisors were behind this whole thing, right? But it doesn't matter. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the same place. They said, King, we cannot do this thing you would ask of us. He says, I'll throw you in the furnace. He says, I'm sorry. It doesn't matter if you throw me in the furnace. I cannot do this thing. They were respectful. They were not seeking to... They weren't rebels. They just couldn't do this thing. We just can't do this thing, King. Daniel was able to maintain a spirit of submission to the king, though he resisted the king's command. And apart from that particular command, Daniel kept his submission in place. Your boss, your husband, your pastor, God forbid, may ask you to do something unbiblical. Can you see the path to respectfully resist your authority without rebelling against him? Without having rebellion in your heart? Can you see the path to maintain your loyalty to God's call for submission while resisting the request that would ask you to offend God's will and God's word? If you can find that balance, you will please the Lord. One more topic I'd like to address this evening briefly. Respectful release. When you're under the authority of someone who is not leading well and you're facing difficult consequences for this poor leadership and this is not an easy thing and you are wounded and you are weary and you are fighting the good fight but it isn't easy and you're spending nights and tears of sorrow and you're tired, it's important both spiritually and physically that you're able to release this. If you don't release it, it can easily become bitterness. But here's the thing. Gossip is not respectful. Personal attacks against someone's character are not, is not respectful. And so often we think that if we tell anyone what's going on, what we're going through, that we're bad-mouthing our authority. But just as you can resist an authority while maintaining a heart of submission, it is possible to release your spiritual and emotional burdens while maintaining a heart of submission. The primary means of doing this is by pouring out our, out our hearts to the Lord. David would regularly do this, right? Psalm 142, 1 and 2, Maskell of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, with my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him, I showed before him my trouble. Psalm 102, verse 1, a prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. There are many men and women who in faith bear burdens of poor authorities, unjust authorities, or even evil authorities, and they pour out their complaints before the Lord, and we know the Lord hears us. And the Lord gives us consolation. But the scriptures take it one step further. Sometimes the human spirit just needs another ear. A friend of consolation in a time of grief. And the question is, is telling somebody else about my authority's shortcomings and my struggles of submission incompatible with said submission? 
Can I express to another person my grief and my sorrow and my burdens regarding my authorities without disrespecting them? Can I maintain submission while acknowledging the faults of my boss or my father or my husband or my pastor? And the answer to this question, I believe, is yes. And I'd like to show you some of the principles of Scripture that help us with this. Primarily, it is this. Many of the troubles in our lives come from authorities. And we are exhorted all throughout the New Testament to bear each other's burdens. Romans chapter 12, verses 10 through 15. Be kindly affectioned one to another in brotherly love and honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. Weep with them that weep. We're called in this passage to function as a body, each using our particular gifts for the betterment of the whole. We're called to rejoice with them that rejoice, to weep with them that weep. How can we carry burdens for each other if we aren't allowed to share them? Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here we see a man that's overtaken by sin. We're called to restore that man when he's overtaken in a fault. How can we help a man bear a burden if we don't know what these burdens are? James 5.16, confess your faults one to another, pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We are called to confess our faults, to pray for one another. How can we pray for one another if we don't know each other's needs? Is a bad boss a need? It is. Can I tell someone I have a bad boss? Can, can someone be praying for me and my bad boss if they don't know my ba- that I have a bad boss? Could, could Esther... And Mordecai appeal to God's people in prayer if they, they, they couldn't share their burdens. All of these commands unto mutual accountability and comfort have one thing in common. Humility. We don't share and bear each other's burdens for the sake of judging one another or for the sake of gossiping We share and bear one another's burdens not to find out who's godly and who's not. We share and bear our burdens so that we can help one another through them. So that we can help one another through them. Have you ever gone running? And you have been running and you've been running by yourself and then one day someone asks if they can run with you and you found that running with someone is actually significantly easier than running alone? That having someone to to keep pace with you that having someone to push you, that you're both saying, I'm exhausted, but I don't want to be the one to quit, so nobody quits. Idea. Having someone just saying, come on, keep up, keep doing it, you can do it. A camaraderie where people are stronger together than apart. Just having someone behind you giving you a hug and saying, you can get through it, can be so helpful. You don't have to bear burdens alone 
When in this spirit we come, when in this spirit you go to a mentor, you go to a brother or sister in Christ, you're not gossiping to everybody, but you're going to someone and saying, I have an authority. I need you to be praying with me that the Lord might change their heart. I need you to be helping me, keep me accountable, praying for me, praying with me that I can maintain submission. And they come up to you and they give you a hug and they say, hey, I've been praying for you. I know it's hard. Keep up the good fight. When this spirit exists, what could be a chance to disrespect and dishonor and authority for his or her faults can instead become a chance to be renewed in my determination to honor them. My determination to honor them. To honor my father is not to regard or to reflect upon him as faultless. To acknowledge a fault of my father is not to fail to respect him. To tell a brother in Christ that my father is, is, uh, um, uh, is, is, is causing me grief in some way, shape, or form, not to tear him down, not to gossip, not in anger, but rather to ask that fellow believer to help me bear this burden with endurance and joy is one of the great privileges of being a part of the family of God. To go to a person or a group of people who will allow you to share your burdens and encourage you in your efforts to submit, encourage you in your efforts to honor them is a blessing found only among the people of God. In a world of people who, hearing the plight of the suffering submissive, would rather call you to say, look, just come out from underneath that authority. Just rebel. You have the privilege of being among a group of people who, knowing the word of God and desiring you to keep it, can hear of your plight and urge you unto deeper heights of submission. Deeper heights. Deeper depths. Let's not be confusing here. But you cannot benefit from such a resource if you are not willing to release. How do you do it properly? What does it take to share a burden about an authority, to share their failures, their, their faults to some degree, to ask for help in bearing them without dishonoring or rebelling against that authority? Here are the ingredients. A heart determined to submit. The difference between gossiping, tearing down an authority, and sharing a burden of submission begins with humility. The heart which is right with their authority is a heart which desires to submit even if they're failing in their capacity to do so. They're tired. You're, you, you are at your wit's end. You are struggling to submit. Find someone who can encourage you. Find someone who loves the Lord to come alongside of you and help you fight this battle. When you desperately desire to please the Lord before your authority, but submission is wearing you down, making you angry, causing you to lash out, leaving you feeling spiritually drained, you need help. You need an ear to hear. You need Someone to love you, to give you doctrine, to build you back up. Number two, have a heart determined to forgive. When you're bearing the burdens of submission to a bad authority, it's important to be determined to forgive. You're experiencing an offense which you may feel every moment of the day, or every day you work, or every day you go to school. We've spoken extensively in our services about forgiveness. The lack of forgiveness for these offenses will mean bitterness, anger, and resentment, and it will short-circuit any capacity that you have to submit. With a heart in this condition, it really is impossible to submit properly. If you're going to share your burden without dishonoring your authority, you must be determined not only to submit, but ready to release, ready to forgive. Number three, a heart determined to endure. 
The only reason why you would ever share this burden is to ask others to help you bear it. Now, as I say this, let me say something else as well. There are times when you need to appeal to a higher authority for discipline. If a husband or a parent is doing something wrong and you are under this burden, there is a time where you can, if you're a part of a church, appeal to the church leadership. You can do that. Your church, your your parents are under the authority of your church, of your pastor. You can appeal to church leadership. If a boss is doing something wrong and you are under a burden, there is a time to appeal to his boss. Or there's a time perhaps to appeal to the government if laws are being broken. There's a time for that. I'm not speaking of these directly this evening. I've spoken of them in passing before. There is a time for you to appeal to a higher earthly authority. That's why God has given them to us. That's what, that, there's a blessing in the church not only of bearing one another's burdens, but there's an authority structure here. Parents, husbands, leaders are under authority. Praise the Lord for that. We can use that. But let's refocus on the idea of endurance here as we close. The reason why you go to a believing friend to help you bear your burden is because you're determined to endure it, not because you want to tear down your authority. It's because you are determined to endure it and you need help enduring it. You're determined to live out Paul's command in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And you're struggling to sow into the Spirit. And you just need someone to help you to lift up your weary hands, to strengthen your feeble needs. We're called in 1 Peter 5, 7 to cast our cares upon Christ, for He careth for us, right? Casting our cares upon Christ, for He careth for you. What is the church but a representation of Christ on this earth? What is a church but the very bride of Christ? Could not the church be a part of bearing the burden that Christ has asked you to bear? In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, we we read this. Jesus speaking, he says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained a brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee two or, or, or one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. The common passage on church discipline, right? Verily I say unto you, Jesus continues to say, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done uh, for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. This passage is teaching about church authority. This passage is telling us is that where the church assembles, Christ's authority assembles with it. What does that mean? Well, in this particular context, the relationship is discipline. But when we understand that the church bears an extension of Christ's authority, we might liken it to a wife or a mother, right? A wife or a mother bears the authority of her husband. So as dad's away at work, mom is the authority. She's an extension of dad's authority. Even if dad's home, mom is operating as an extension of dad's authority. The church operates as an extension of Christ's authority. 
That's how we operate. In agreement with this principle, we need to understand that as God has given the church power and authority, we have the capacity to help each other bear the burdens that Christ desires to, to help us bear. The church is a part of Christ's solution to bear our burdens. When you're having a difficult time with an authority, when you're driven to the very ends of your capacity, attempting to remain submissive to that boss or that father or that husband or that government or that pastor, you are not asked by God to go at it alone. This is not God's desire or intent. He's given you a family. And a part of the design of this family is to help you bear your burdens. Three principles this evening that we've covered. Respectful appeal, respectful resistance, respectful release. And we've learned of these to this end, to understand that submission is not a dead-end road of misery when you have a bad authority. In this country, some of us may never have experienced such conflict. Our government, generally speaking, leaves us alone, at least on the spiritual end of things, not so much on the policy and regulation end of things. Our economy is good enough that, generally speaking, we can be picky about who we, vote, who we work for, right? You can get a different job, generally speaking. Uh, we have the privilege of choosing our spouse, and we don't have a lot of arranged marriages today, which can alleviate some of the trials of submitting unwillingly to someone that you don't love or respect. Uh, we, uh, the only place where this principle is absolutely and without question compelled is children submitting to their parents, right? Because you just plain don't have a choice. And yet it is absurd to think that there are not people listening who are struggling in various contexts. I would never want to assume that nobody in here has a bad authority, a bad teacher, a bad boss, a bad parent, a bad husband, a bad government official, a bad pastor, a bad deacon that they're struggling with. We will experience these in our lives. The intent of this message is to give us the tools to manage these situations properly. Nothing I said last week about the necessity of submission goes away. It's all there. This is built on top of that. But we have options. There are tools that God has set in place to help us alleviate the burdens of a bad authority. And it begins with respectful appeal. Asking them to allow us the freedom to do what is right or to do what is easier or to, to relieve the burden on us. Under certain circumstances, it might include respectful resistance, opposing the command of an authority to do something contrary to God's will or my conscience under God. But in all things, we're called by God to endure, to be content, to do all things without murmurings and disputings, to endure afflictions and hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. As soldiers of Jesus Christ, however, were not asked to fight alone. I don't know of any, any, any situation in the military where they would send a man into battle without, a, without at least a, a man by his side. And so we learn how to respectfully release our burdens. And the church can be a part of that. To let God's people help us endure. May God help us use these principles in our lives to better relate to our authorities and to better relate to our duties to submit to those authorities under God.